0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, is where we will be this morning. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for seven weeks, and I'm still tempted to say the book of Romans sometimes when I stand up. But we've been in the Gospel of Mark for seven weeks, and this morning uh, we will begin chapter 2, having completed chapter 1. In chapter 1, Mark's aim was made clear. The reason he has provided us with the gospel of Mark is to put before us a vision of Jesus which confirms who Jesus claimed to be, that is, the divine Son of God. I mean, from the very beginning of the book, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark identifies the thesis of the book. He begins in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. Next, a voice in the wilderness begins to cry that somebody is coming. John the Baptist speaks of a man who is greater than he, a man who he's not worthy of untying his sandal, a man whom John the Baptist says is so mighty he is able to immerse people in the very spirit of the living God. Then Jesus shows up, he is baptized, and at his baptism, the heavens themselves tear open the spirit descends upon jesus and a voice is heard from the heavens declaring this is my son of whom i am well pleased and jesus begins to preach that the kingdom of god is at hand you keep on moving through chapter one and it's not only john the baptist it's not only uh, a voice from heaven that knows who he is but it's the demons themselves that declare the identity of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 24, there's an outburst in the middle of a church service, and a demon uh, explodes in fear and trembling, saying, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the claim of the Gospel of Mark thus far is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And these claims are serious. Jesus, Son of God, Holy One of God, Divine, Teacher of God's Word with authority, Healing the sick, Cleaning the leper, Sending demons away, trembling in fear. And if it's true, then these claims are absolutely, undeniably life-changing. If, if this book, these chapters, preserved for 2,000 years, if these represent reality, that is, that there really was a man named Jesus who did these things and said these things, this reality changes our lives today. Does it not? Amen. Thank you. We need some amens in here. As we gaze upon Jesus, the Son of God. If, if, if this is real, then eternity is real. Our need for forgiveness is real. And the good news of salvation is real. But, when you come into the Gospel of Mark, not everybody is pleased to believe Jesus' identity. Thus far, we've seen mostly excited and amazed crowds flocking to Jesus because of the amazing things that he is doing. But the story we turn to this morning introduces us to the first time some who believe wholeheartedly in this Jesus and some who refuse to believe. Tucked away in this passage is the first of five controversies or five confrontations that mark strings together back to back to back to back that introduce you to how the religious people of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, are responding to what Jesus is doing. And so let's read and pray uh, for God to grant us both understanding and faith to believe in the Jesus that's represented in this passage. So begin with me in uh, verse 1, I'll read all the way to verse 12, and then we'll pause and pray for God to grant us understanding. Verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by In their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in the spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sons are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, help us to know what it is we are to take away from this story. Teaching narratives, reading narratives, is very different than reading the letters of Paul. Paul spoke in arguments. He he moved from point A to point B to point C, but Father, what we have here is just a story of what you have done So help us to interpret it rightly, help us to understand what we are to see here and what we are to believe here and what we are to walk away with, God. We pray that you would work the miracle of me speaking with clarity and power so that you you would also work the miracle that hearts would hear and be moved to worship Jesus afresh this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us to gaze upon the Savior, how he spoke and what he did, Father, and what he has promised to us, God. We pray, help us to rejoice over things that we often lose the wonder about. I pray, Father, restore our awe this morning as we just think about this moment in history where you reveal yourself through the words and works of Jesus. So, God, we pray, reveal yourself now through the words on the page. We pray this by your glory, or by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So look back at verse 1 with me. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to him. So Jesus is back in Capernaum. This is where it all started in the Gospel of Mark. This is where Mark first recorded that Jesus uh, began to teach with authority, where Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and the demon outcried who it was. This is where it all began. But in chapter 1 verses 38 through 39 we learn that there was such a buzz about Jesus in Capernaum that he was being overwhelmed by the crowds. He escapes into the wilderness to spend some time in prayer, and his disciples come to him and say, hey, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus responds by saying, "Um, I came to preach the word, so we're going to travel to the next city now. And so he leaves Capernaum to go to the next place, and he preaches. But now, according to this passage, some time has passed, and he's now returned to Capernaum, and he's preaching the word again. And as he's preaching the word, news is getting around that the teacher is back. And so the crowds begin to flock again. But on this particular occasion, Jesus is not teaching outdoors. You know, normally you envision Jesus teaching on a hill and they're being sort of like filling uh, grassy fields people or you think of the time when Jesus is teaching and the crowds are so numerous. He's got to get onto a boat into the water so they're not pressing in on him as he's proclaiming the word. He's not outside on this occasion. On this occasion, somehow this started out as a small group in a living room and it erupted into more than a small group in a living room, Right. Maybe that'll happen to some of our small groups this summer. Maybe you'll have people pressing in around the windows and doors, right? Amen. <laughs> Amen. The text seems to suggest that this may be Jesus's home, that Jesus may have been living in Capernaum at the time and had a home. It just says he was at home. It's not super clear whose house it is, uh, but it, but it, it, perhaps it could be Peter's mother-in-law's home where he had healed Peter's mother-in-law early in, earlier in the story, but Regardless, what is clear, he's in a home. He's in a living room, packed full of people, wall to wall, with faces filling the windows, crowds squeezing into the door opening, and outside into the yard. No social distancing happening in this home, right? Government would have shut this thing down, right? They are packed wall to wall and window to window. And then in verse 2, the scene changes, you change from inside the home to a group of five men who are stuck outside the home. Look at verse three. And they came, doesn't even give you names, just says they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So this group of men is late to the party, likely because their travel time was uh, tremendously slowed down. Because they were not traveling by themselves. Rather, these four men are carrying what is perhaps either a family member or a friend who is paralyzed. They've built some sort of transportable bed uh, where they've got him, where they can carry them. I don't know if this is like a piece of wood or if it's a piece of cloth, whatever the case may be. They're carrying this paralyzed man who cannot pick himself up and take himself to Jesus. And they're, they're hoping that they'll make it in time. To be able to sit down with the one who may be willing to heal a disease, a disability that is, um, for most of us, unfathomable. I mean, I, I, when I was thinking about this text and just thinking about the reality of a paralyzed person, even today, uh, we, we don't have any paralyzed people in our church presently we don't have any members and I don't think there's anyone here uh, that suffers with this reality so for many of us we take for granted the ability to walk the ability to run the ability to to that I have to wrestle with my son in the floor to use my arms and my legs as they were intended to be used many of us take for granted the grace that God has given us so that our our brains send signals to our hands and our hands do what our brains tell them to do. But there are many in this broken world, presently, right now, there are many that every single day, when they wake up in the morning, They are reminded that this world is not the way it was supposed to be because their bodies do not work the way they are supposed to work. There are many who face the brokenness of their own body every morning they wake up. And many of us, even here today, many church members do face the brokenness of their own body when they wake up. Maybe it's not paralysis, but it takes form in different ways. But you, you felt it when you woke up this morning, ate breakfast, that things are not the way it's supposed to be. I just turned 30 this week, and I've had some back pain already. And I'm thinking, already, things are not the way it's supposed to be. The brokenness of our bodies are a painful reminder of the brokenness of our world and our desperate need for new bodies, our desperate need for a new creation, for whatever's gone wrong in this world to be reversed. So to be a paralytic in our day has challenges unimaginable for many of us. But to be a paralytic in the first century would have brought challenges even unique to today. I mean, there are very few jobs available in the first century to someone who cannot walk. There were not many desk jobs. There, there were not handicap-accessible buildings. There, there were not the technologies of an electric wheelchair to move from, from one point to another point. That means you would have had to, had to have relied on someone else. For literally everything in your life. There was no semblance of independence. There was only helplessness all the time. I think that perhaps one of the worst parts about this particular condition. Is the, the, the inability to care for yourself. To not be able to do simple tasks that everyone else in the world takes for granted. And then you combine that with the common belief that such severe suffering was due to their own sinfulness or the sinfulness of their parents. Paralytics found themselves truly on the outcast, uh, as outcasts in society. These, these people were driven to live lives of poverty, begging for assistance of passers-by if there was no family or friends to care for them so you just have to sometimes you got to slow down when you read the bible and recognize that mark chapter 2 verse 1 through 12 is the story of a real man in real history who really lived what seemed to be a hopeless life we don't know if he was born this way Or if he suffered injury as an adult, I don't know what's worse, to never walk or to know what it's like and then have it taken from you. We only know that this guy is desperate for something to change in his life and he's got four good friends. (laughs) And they're desperate for him to be healed and to meet the only one whom they collectively think could potentially reverse this man's conditions so 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 think about this, you hear about jesus location you 've gathered your friend you 're carrying him through the cities you 're rushing to the home where you think that Jesus is teaching, and you show up and you 're arriving a little late to the party and and can you just imagine the sinking feeling and the the countenance of the men 's faces falling when you show up to the house and the crowd is literally overwhelming the doors and windows and pushing into the street and you 're sort of standing on the outside carrying your friend thinking how in the world are we going to get through this i mean it's one thing to you, you ever pushed through like a crowd, like a theme park or something like that or like a concert there's somebody up at the front and you're trying to get to them and you're like 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 doing these things getting through and you're pushing and i mean it's hard for one person to get through a crowd that's pressing in to see something important on the stage but what if you're carrying another man <laughs> And four of you have to get through. So you get there and you're thinking, this is a seemingly hopeless situation. Like, how are we supposed to get to Jesus? So they're standing there and the text doesn't tell us how this idea came about. But somebody in the group says, I've got an idea. may seem a little crazy, a little presumptuous, might be vandalism. And could get us into a bunch of trouble. But if the guy in that living room is who we think he is. It'll be worth it. So houses in those days are built. um, To where the roofs function kind of like their decks. Okay. So they're flat roofs. And there are little stone stairs. Around the back side of the house somewhere. Where you can actually access the roof from the outside. And so apparently one of the guys is like saying. Hey I think we should try to carry him up the stairs, and on the roof, and find a way inside, and I'm sure, you know, you got the one guy who's like really nervous, I'm like, no, we can't do that, we can't do that, and we're like, no, come on, man, we're just doing it, we're doing it, and so they, they go, they take the man up the stairs, have you ever moved anybody out of a second floor apartment, or third floor apartment, I know some of you have, because we've helped move you out of some of those places, and you're trying to take the couch around the stairs, these guys are doing it with a guy on a mat, trying to keep him straight, as they're going up the stairs. Verse 4. When they could not get near him because the crowd, they removed the roof above him. This is, see, I mean, it doesn't give us a lot of detail, but a lot happened between that moment, right? <laughs> they couldn't get near him, and then they removed the roof. There's a lot of steps in between there that had to happen. So they removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. pretty crazy to think about the scenario from the outside you know i mean these guys are on the roof they get on the roof they're like okay now what you know no opening some guy says start digging it's made out of mud on the top of the roof and so all four guys now are are digging right they're digging a hole into the roof to get on the inside pretty wild scene to think of it from the outside also a wild scene to think of it from the inside right i mean jesus is preaching sermons going and then all of a sudden you just hear you know, everybody's trying to keep eyes locked on Jesus. A little distracting. It's a weird animal on the roof or something, and then and then just a little bit of a little bit of stuff starts falling. Right? Starts falling down, and then all of a sudden sunlight breaks through, and the hole's getting bigger and bigger. And at this point, like, I mean, does Jesus just keep teaching through this? Right? I mean, everyone's wondering what's happening, happening next hole gets big enough for the guy to be lowered down into the room, obviously the sermon's at a stopping point now, Jesus has to address the new person in the room, right? And so at this point in the story, all eyes are on Jesus, because it's like, okay, this is the guy with the authority, this is the guy who we're here to see, what will Jesus say? I mean, your sermon was just interrupted by these rude, careless, sinful house crashers who couldn't wait their turn outside is jesus going to rebuke them and tell them to get out and wait their turn but surprisingly jesus doesn't appear to be angry at their vandalism (laughs) jesus rather seems pleased by what's happening i mean look at verse five And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, now before I comment on what Jesus said, let me just pause and comment on what Jesus saw. Because apparently what Jesus saw was not vandalism. It was not cutting in line. What Jesus saw was their faith. Now, we tend to think about faith as simply knowledge or belief in true things but for this man and his friends their faith became visible faith was more than acknowledgement about certain facts to be true faith was belief that moved them it was belief that provoked an action i think the first thing that we can see in the text this morning this is truth number one is that faith That saves is faith that is seen. For these men, there was no hope unless... The miracle-working Messiah was who he said he was. For these men, there was nowhere else to turn. No, there was no step they were not willing to take. If Jesus was the Messiah, then there was no shame in clawing through someone else's roof to get their friend before the eyes of the one who has the authority of the living God. If Jesus was who he said he was, who cares if it makes a scene? We'll fix the roof. (laughs) And I think in this text we see what genuine faith is. Genuine saving faith that saves a person. It's a faith that produces action that is visible. This is why James drives home the point in James chapter 2 that some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. The point is, you can't show me your faith apart from your faith doing something in your soul that translates to the way you live your life. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Jesus looks on this paralytic and calls him son before the physical healing takes place. There was a spiritual something taking place here that's tied to his belief in who Jesus was. There's no disconnect in this man between what he believes to be true and the actions that they were willing to take. If you really believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord, then you do what it takes to get to him, to serve him, to present yourself before him. And I just i to pause right there and just wonder together how many of us have a faith that can be seen How many of us, I wonder how many of us display actions, lifestyles that are consistent with what we say we believe? Jesus saw their faith. Does anyone else see your faith? Or do you look a lot like everyone else in the world? Unwilling to make a scene, unwilling to take risks. Because at the root of it, perhaps Jesus is not in as high a place as you say that he is. Jesus saw their faith, but then even more remarkably than that is what he says in verse 5. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, those are shocking words for multiple reasons. I mean, for one, is this really what the man needed? Doesn't he need healing from his paralysis? I mean, they they just worked so hard to get him in the room, and the first things out of Jesus' mouth is, son, your sins are forgiven. And it's like, like, are the people in the room, they're like, doesn't he have other problems right now? Like... (laughs) what is that really why they're here and we don't know much the the scripture doesn't tell us how the paralytic responded to this if the paralytic realized that that was those were the most precious words he could ever imagine or if the paralytic was like okay cool but (laughs) like there's something else that i need right here All, all we get is that jesus prioritized as a first matter of importance the words son your sins are forgiven another reason it's shocking is that that Jesus would say that at all. Who has the authority to forgive sins? Can Jesus, okay, Jesus does some pretty cool stuff, but can Jesus do that? Like, eternally forgive those who've sinned against a holy God. And it's that second reason that really ruffles the religious guys in the room. I mean, this, the religious guys in the room, I love how they're presented, um, that they're sitting there, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Apparently, these guys got the seats in the house. They're sitting and observing what's going on in the room. Verse 7, they start questioning in their hearts, and this is what they question Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving a spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And thus, the clash begins between the people who think they do not need Jesus and Jesus. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elite who were put off by Jesus' words more than drawn to them respected leaders who had a lot to lose if jesus really was the only one worth following and being good students of theology they recognize a problem with what jesus just said jesus just put himself in the place of god and though they don't say it out loud yet their minds and their hearts are racing with all of the questions this man's blaspheming and having not said anything at all jesus knows what's going on on the inside and begins to question them on their questioning. Now, that's like a commercial note, and we kind of talked about it earlier in the service, but just the fact that these guys didn't have to speak out their thoughts, but that Jesus knew exactly where they stood on who Jesus was. You waste a lot of time hiding stuff. Scary sort of side note in this text. The accusation of blasphemy... Was a really big deal. I mean, the Old Testament uh, blasphemy was one of those sins that got you stoned to death. Blasphemy was the direct insulting of God. It was the making a mockery of God in an intentional way. Jesus was claiming to have the authority that only God alone. he was putting himself in the place of god and that is a massive problem with the god of the universe it's a massive problem for you and it's a massive problem for me if we pretend to be god though many of us do often in our lives but what about for jesus i like how sinclair ferguson says it. he says god alone can forgive sins there was nothing wrong with their theology But there was something wrong with their logic. They reasoned, since only God can forgive sins, and this man claims to forgive sins, he must be blaspheming. But there was, however, an alternative conclusion. Perhaps he did have the authority to forgive sins, in which case, he must be God. Truth number two, and I think the main point of this entire story, and why it's in your Bibles, is that Jesus is the God who forgives The scribes were correct in their questions. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were just wrong in their conclusion. Jesus is not blaspheming. He is saying what he has the authority to say because he is, in fact, God. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and it is so. He is declaring authority over something much, much more... uh, uh, crazy, much more wild than the demons themselves. Yeah, command demons to go do stuff that you tell them to do, but command people to be forgiven for eternity by the words of your mouth. He, he, he's speaking the good news right now. That forgiveness is made possible for a sinful people. And it's just so interesting that he does this before he does the healing of the p- paralytic Look at um, verse 9. Jesus sets up his miracle by asking some questions. Verse 9, he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So so he's looking at the religious people and he's like, what do you think is harder? What do you think is harder? To forgive someone of their sins or for me to tell this guy to stand up and walk Who has been paralyzed? It's obviously a rhetorical question. Nobody wants to answer, right? So there's just sort of that awkward silence. It's like, all right. And then Jesus continues. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Now, this is a big moment. I cannot imagine the joy, the tears, the bewilderment that must have been taking place in the room between the four friends, all in the new skylight that has been made. Everyone's dancing, rejoicing over what amazing miracle just took place. Place And I just want to say this kind of as a side note. Jesus' miracles were no small miracles. Like, like, these historical records that we have telling the story of Jesus, they do not comment on Jesus healing somebody's back pain or their, their crick in their neck from the car accident. They do not comment on him just taking away headaches or lengthening someone's leg. When Jesus speaks, paralyzed people walk. Blind people see, deaf people hear, dead people get up. This is, this is not pretend. This is not a show. He's not swindling people out of their money. He doesn't have a show on the television. I almost named a network. This Jesus, when he worked miracles, everyone crowded around the house knew a miracle took place and that there was something different about Jesus so that he received all the glory. We never saw anything like this, was the response of the people. Amazement and worship, going where it belonged. But the way Jesus packages this miracle, to me, it, to me this is the most stunning thing of the whole passage. What's so interesting about this is that Jesus seems to be painting the forgiveness of sins... ...as the greater miracle. And the healing of the paralytic... ...as simply the supportive miracle. Do you see this in the text? The forgiveness of sins is the main event. The the man now using his legs for the first time... ...is the supporting role. (laughs) Truth number three... ...the forgiveness is the greater miracle... This man stands up and walks, perhaps for the first time in his life. And Jesus says that this miracle was performed for the purpose of authenticating the forgiveness that he gave the man. The lesser miracle serves the greater miracle. Now, if that's true, like if the the walking of a paralytic for the first time is just the shadow or the symbol of how good the forgiveness is that he just received... Lord, have mercy. What does that say about our need for forgiveness? What does this say about the miracle of my salvation as an eight-year-old boy? This man was hopeless and helpless, could not move his legs on his own accord, and at the word of Jesus stood and walked. But we are to see this miracle as paling in comparison to what Jesus did with the words, your sins are forgiven. Our spiritual condition, apart from Christ, is far worse than paralysis. And our sin... According to the scriptures, we are blind to the goodness of God, deaf to the word of God, have no taste for the glory of God, and no desire for the gifts of God. In our sin, we have no hope to earn our forgiveness, no strength to save ourselves, no knowledge of true joy, not even awareness of where to look for it. In our sin, we are more than paralyzed. According to the scripture, we are dead to the things of God and doomed to the consequences we deserve. But the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God is... But Jesus, right? That Jesus has authority to just declare in a moment, forgiven, set free. He, 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 by his authority, he brings life and forgiveness for every wrongdoing of the past, present, and future. He has the authority to say to you spiritually, stand up and let's have a walk together as you pursue the things of God for the first time in your life, this is the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has the authority to forgive for all of eternity. And that one day, we who have been forgiven will live in a world without the brokenness. As I've said before in the Gospel of Mark, every miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is a foretaste of the kingdom of God we've been promised. Every miracle is a pulling back the curtain on what will be fully and finally in a new heavens and a new earth for all of eternity. Where there will be new bodies all around. No more disabilities, no more paralysis, no more pain or brokenness, no more sin in need of forgiveness. That's why Jesus begins the whole preaching ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news is you are forgiven and there's a kingdom coming that you have an invitation to. A kingdom where paralytics are no more. And everyone runs and jumps. Faith that saves and brings us into that kingdom is faith that is seen. Jesus in that day will be known by all to be the God who forgives. And we will all glorify God for the forgiveness, which is the greater miracle. So how do we respond to this passage this morning? Let me give you three takeaways before we stand and worship. Number one, number one, run to Jesus with your every need. The faith of these men pleased Jesus. They, they ran to him for both physical and spiritual need. They ran to him even when things stood in their way. They dug holes through the roof and made a spectacle of themselves just to get near to him do you run to jesus similarly i mean we in this room we have the spirit of god the word of god the people of god at our disposal at all times and how sad it is that the smallest of inconveniences will detour us from running to the one who can meet every need we can have a bad morning and and it can send us away from the lord rather than running to him. Traffic can be bad. And we could say, I'm I'm just done with the day. I'll try again tomorrow. I I want to be the kind of person who when they face the crowded room crowding me out, I'm going on the stinking roof and climbing through the ceiling so that I might sit at the feet of the one who saves. Run to Jesus with your every need. Number two, Align your faith with your life. Jesus could see their faith because their actions aligned with what they were already believing. Is that true of you today? Can we see that you believe in Christ by the way you live your life, make your decisions, spend your money, spend your time, and so on and so on? Is your faith visible? If there is no visibility to faith, it might not be faith. It might just be acknowledgement to, to some facts that you've heard in a Christian culture, but not dependence upon the Lord Jesus with your life. Number three. And sometimes this is, sometimes we, we try to find the secret meaning or whatever in the scriptures and we're, we're trying to discern. And sometimes a passage of scripture is there. And the main thing you need to do in your quiet time that morning is just be amazed with Jesus. Sometimes there's not like a, like a secret key to unlock how you're going to make it through your workday or like who you're supposed to marry or, you know, fill in the blank. Sometimes when you come to your Bible, the only thing you're supposed to walk away with is to be af- amazed afresh. With things that you're quick to forget. Sometimes it's just to see words like. Like who can forgive sins but God alone. And you just realize. Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Because Jesus is God. And you're just supposed to walk away from that text the morning. That morning a little more amazed. With something you already knew. That Jesus has forgiven you. Of your sins. And so let's. Pray and uh, pray that God would just help us to be amazed again this morning. Lord, we pray that you would lead us now to respond rightly to the word that we have seen and heard. We pray that you would help us not be like the scribes sitting on the side, hesitant to believe in Jesus because of what, how it might change our, our own comfortabilities, our own lives, our own traditions, our own way of thinking. And Father, we pray that we would be much more like the men Carrying their paralytic friend, scraping and clawing and doing whatever it takes just to sit at the feet of Jesus. Father, we pray, guide us in our worship of you even now. Stir our hearts to be amazed. Help us to repent of anywhere where we have fallen short or where our lives, what we believe and what we do have fallen into disconnect, God. I pray you would show that as we just behold Christ, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.